Welcome to the Four Corners Podcast with Lenny Marcus. Joining me today, as always, is my co-host, Neil Potter. we going to put some gravy on that. Four topics, 15 minutes each. We're just killing time. Kill it with us. Our Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram is the number four C podcast. Subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on the Laugh Button Network, thelaughbutton.com. Today's guest is a comedian originally from Roxbury, Massachusetts, the inner city of Boston. For those of you who don't know where that is, currently residing in Brooklyn. He's also a cultural critic and a writer whose mirthful and insightful analysis of race and politics have resonated throughout the Twitterverse. I definitely stole that from somewhere. I didn't write that. You've seen him do. <laughs> You've seen him do stand up on season nine's NBC's Last Comic Standing, where he's a top twenty finalist, and on Access TV's Gotham Comedy Live. He's also an actor who's been featured in a twenty four film Obvious Child. He has his first book coming out called Tweeting Truth to Power, chronicling caustic politics, crazed times, and the great. Black and White Divide, which will be published in the fall of 2020. Oh, no, it's, it's published now. It's, it's published now. now. We can get it now. Damn, I have to read another book, Neil. There we go. It's Let's Cyrus it. McQueen. Long time no see, baby. Thank you for making I me. I know. I, last time I saw you, you weren't wearing a mask. So <laughs> That's right. Definitely changed. Man, I miss running into you. That's always fun. Man, it's been that I long. Know. It's gonna. That I miss means the vestiges of, of normality. I miss <laughs> stand-up comedy. I miss people crammed in a room with the laughter bouncing off the walls. Yeah, I miss having people. Usually, I have people come in. We love having people come up here and hanging out for a, you know a couple hours, and it actually sounds better for the listeners. Nope, everything's yeah. remote. And now Neil's going to go back to his little bunker. And it's it sounds still, like I'm talking to two like Martians. It's still the saddest thing I saw in the pandemic was outside the comedy store in L.A. when they were, one guy was performing in the glass. <laughs> yeah, and that's there's true. A bunch of, so there's like four people tragic. sitting outside the comedy store and a guy's behind the glass inside the comedy store talking outside the glass. <laughs> it was so it, sad. It looked like something out of uh, Amsterdam. Like yeah, a stripper. Yeah. yeah, like a stripper. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it was ridiculous. It's like, this is so sad. Like the four... Like 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 skewed red light district. Yes. <laughs> yeah, with yes. comics, it was terrible. Um, so why wouldn't they just do it outside? I I guess they wanted that barrier for the comic, comic. but it was yeah. just so sad. It was. I mean, they were in the middle of this pandemic. They shouldn't have been doing anything, to be honest with you. I mean, they had to make it. I it mean, did look like they put a quarter in, and then the guy lit up and started talking, <laughs> and then <laughs> and then it ran out. He's not lying. It really was like we all walked by it like. Yeah, that's sad. That's sad right there. Even Leslie oh was like, that's God. sad. Um, so um, you're making me read another book, huh? Um, we'll get to the book in a minute, but people got to, I'm comic friends, write books. And then yeah. I have to like, yeah. All right. But listen, I want to talk about you for this first 15. So I met you as the doorman of Gotham Comedy Club back. Yeah. Jeez. When did you start doing that? That was the 
fall of 2003. So you and I met then, and we became fast friends, because I still remember, I don't know if I met you Very Jewish Christmas was the first time. I think I had to have met you before Very Jewish Christmas, uh, but so wait, I can still remember like that first year I worked there, and I was going out on Christmas Eve when the city was like dead. And you gave me the best advice I think I've ever received. We went to a bar, and I was going to order a tuna fish sandwich, and you said, don't ever order the tuna at, at, at 11 o'clock at night, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Is that I, the title of the second book? I don't remember that in a bar, definitely not. But you know what? I always say that the tuna fish, just as a quick aside, the tuna fish in New York City in every diner I've ever been to is the same tuna yeah, yeah. fish. It tastes exactly. Am I, I nuts, Neil? No, it it's tastes all, exactly. It's, to go to, it's they go the to some Acme tuna <laughs> fish sales <laughs> yeah, store. Right. You go to any diner in they New York bought City. It, you're right. It's some tuna. I'm like, this is unbelievable. There is no love in this tuna fish. But and, wait, so that was the well, old. I got the burger and the rest of this history. I didn't get there sick. You there you go. And, uh, yeah, you've been you've been steering me in the right direction ever since. <laughs> so wait, 2003 was that the old Gotham is still around? That was the old Gotham, yeah, man. We oh, wow. Little, the little small joint on 22nd Street. Yeah, I like that um, joint better than the big joint. Yeah. Well, the laughter, I felt like the, the laughter would just, just bounced off the walls better there. Than yeah. Music. Just everything was just, you know, more intimate. It had the same sort of vibe that a, that a cellar gets when, you know, you pack that room. Yep. And you start cooking. It's just like there's nothing like it. Bigger venues, like, you know, they're great. I guess you get more people in, and it's great for the bottom line, but it's like a cavernous venue. It does not give you the same sort of comfort as a performer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it really it took a while for that Gotham to really get going. It took years. It took, like, three, four years for it to really get You're going. You're talking about the old Gotham that they made a cabaret, yeah. like, room out of. Yeah. Yeah, that was, was, that was a great was room. Bad for that a was a great it was room. bad for a long time, and then all of a sudden it kicked in, and Crystal Mazzilli, the owner, will tell you a great story about how they, they were like, oh, we're going down the drain. And then all of a sudden, I think Seinfeld came in, and boom. The whole thing changed in like a weekend. It was, it was weird. That was a cool But room. it was a great room. And I'm like, wait, they're like, we're moving to a bigger room. Like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> no, you finally got this thing up and running. Everybody likes working here. Why would you screw with this? But anyway, but how did you get to there is really the first part. Like, you're in Boston. Let's go. You know, you grew up in inner city. What was that like yeah. in Boston? Boston's a tough town. Yeah. Well, Gotham just appeared to me in a dream, and I just my fate was sealed. So <laughs> I, uh, no. I New York to go to, to go to drama school to pursue acting because I'd done a lot of theater in Boston, and I got into this really prestigious drama program. And so I was going to school during the day in this like two year conservatory, um, and that was basically right down the street from Gotham. And my classmate actually worked at the at the old Gotham, and so he was the one who got me the job. Uh-huh. Um, and so I was basically the first couple of years I was at Gotham, I was still in drama school. So every day I was you know doing Shakespeare and ballet and shit, and then uh, at night I was working there. And at some point, like everybody, you know the the, the fix of comedy that 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 irreplaceable drug just sort of like swept over me and i thought oh no this is where it's at yeah i had no idea you even wanted to do that i just thought so you, you weren't doing that. comedy in boston you were just acting in boston yeah I was just oh, okay theater yeah. oh wow okay well, like for whatever reason like the, the the there's a symbiosis there for whatever reason I, and i found that um if you can command attention it's not too dissimilar to being on stage but the fact that you're the writer you're the choreographer you're everything you wear all the hats yeah um there's just something so magnificent about stand-up comedy that is unparalleled in any other art form the immediacy of of your whether 
whether your art is being received or not, I think sets comics apart from just about anybody else. Like, a lot of people can they could go and, like, bop their heads to, you know, some guy playing guitar. It's subjective in that way, but nothing is as objective as are people laughing or not. Right. Well, what was the school you went to down the block from that place? Stella Adler. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Stella yeah. Adler Conservatory is where, was where Brando went and De Niro went. I was trying to, you know, be a... That's right. Well, I mean, you, you're well-rounded. I mean, it's actually better for stand-up because if you make it, they always go, can he act? And the answer will be yes. Um, yes, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. But the one thing that I discovered, and I don't know, you know if you've ever been on like the audition track in, in the city, um, <laughs> the thing about stand-up is that you can sort of like command your own destiny, I found. And it's like, um, this is like before the... Malcolm Gladwell book came out about, you know, getting your 10,000 hours or whatever it is. Right. I just found, like, with stand-up, you could be proactive in ways that you couldn't as an actor. Like, you needed permission to do your art when you're an actor. Or if you're in an improv troupe, you got to, like, you know, play that bullshit card and, you know, like, try to get on a team or something. Um, I found with stand-up, you just really could just start hitting the, the, the pavement. And the city did never had a shortage of venues or, you know, bar basements or backup cafes that you could, like, you know, apply your training no i agree that's the same that's what attracted me to it a lot too same same thing. yeah neil has your background because acting just was taken for i was just like oh my god and then you have to rely on if you can get a, even a good script to do something so it was really painful <laughs> absolutely it's just like i wish i'd have known then what i know now i probably because i didn't start uh stand-up for until 2009 right so you're talking about like a good five years i was basically auditioning during the day working in gotham at night or i was in drama school during the day or doing class during the day and then you know going to the club at night and for whatever reason it just finally just dawned on me like no this is where it's at like well, put your creative energy into, into this art form and you can at least be more proactive about well, it well when you say that it dawned on you i mean you've been you watch these people walk by you five years to just stick your head in and go i could do better than that guy i mean or did you just just like why don't i it really was one day you woke up and went i should do that in that room yeah are you writing right away are you starting to write no, well, i think I yeah, we talked I about it for a minute. Give you credit for this because you—I don't know if you saw something in me or whatever—but you would always bounce material off of me, and you know, not just you, but Gaffigan, Geraldo. Like I came up in that club where like all these this titans were just doing their thing, right. and so me getting to study every night in many ways sort of like you know sped up my my learning curve. And like watching you guys, and then you guys trusted me enough to bounce, you know, material off of me. And I think you even yourself said, like, you've watched so much of what not to do, and also you've seen it conversely when people do extremely well that you sort of have a sort of blueprint of like what will work and what doesn't work. So you've kind of already honed a sort of a, a perspective or a dynamic that will help you uh, when you actually do tackle stand up. Yeah, I mean, it definitely helps that you what you could see. You you know you seeing so many shows you see the pros and then you see the open mics you're like oh okay so you could at least right. like study it a little now, bit now where do you do your first set at at Gotham or somewhere yeah, well that's one of my questions that <laughs> you, you found and he found out very quickly that it's that stage is eight feet away from him right and it's probably the hardest stage in the whole world to get on is the <laughs> one you're true, eight feet true. away from for some reason right Cyrus seriously yeah it was it was, it was daunting discouraging you you name it. Um, the first place I performed was New York Comedy Club. And oh, I don't mic there. He and can't even perform in the <laughs> own comedy club <laughs> no, that he's working at. It totally makes sense to me. It doesn't for yeah, people well, listening. No, 
Like, there was really no opportunity. Like, they made it known. It's not like the comedy store, which is kind of like, it's revealing in many ways watching this, like, comedy store documentary about how many guys started from working the door there. Right. Whereas in New York City and Gotham, it was the complete opposite. It was just like a no-go. You just could not. Right. No matter, like, you know, the, the hours and hours and hours and years and years and years I spent there, I couldn't sort of, like, it was so close but so far away, like, as you say. Even if someone doesn't show up, even if someone doesn't show up one night, like, that never happened where someone... No. Because comics are no, so close. Lenny, Lenny, yeah. Lenny can speak to this more than I can. <laughs> it's like a very odd dynamic yeah, it's that, a very, that I just could never, that per- hurdle I just could never overcome. That per- no, matter how, no matter even after the last comic standing and all that other stuff, I was still working there for a couple of weeks and I just finally had to like leave because it was just like too dispiriting. Like, how the hell can I perform on that television? <laughs> I still can't get a spot here. Yeah, that, that it was very, <laughs> I mean, one of the most bizarre <laughs> aspects of that club is that you no matter what they will not put you on that stage well it's like you work there you think it'd be like a sports story like where someone doesn't you know you finally you're like the guy on the bench and you finally get in but in gotham it's true like the if you if someone doesn't show up like if 10 comics don't show up and it's like finally down to you there'd be 10 more in like five seconds there like they can just make a call and there's so many comics like ready to go on at gotham you know what i mean (laughs) yeah yeah, you think about like the other like you know a, a comedy store like how they have a completely different attitude towards it um, versus I guess you know a club like that in New York City. Well, that happened with Colin Quinn as well. I think he was the he was the uh, bartender at um, the Strip. And then I think he has some kind of story like, Lucian, I want to do stand-up. Well, go out and do it. You know, like, <laughs> not, not here. here. <laughs> you know, it was really funny. Um, so... Um, you, you yeah, but where's his you, first spot? New York, oh, comedy, New York club. comedy Club. So yeah, that was yeah. cool. And it starts taking off from there. Like you start. Well, he starts doing it. He just yeah. starts doing it, and then he realizes yeah, oh, like I can I do said, this. Like I, I started like I probably already. We want to look back to that that Gladwell analogy in the ten thousand hours. Like I already probably amassed a good couple thousand just from watching it. Oh, cool. So I, I had I had that leg up honestly over a lot of people. I I can't I can't doubt I can't you know deny that and you were also I started like i became a a, a a village rat i started going around the village east and, and west the village lantern boston comedy club was still there briefly um uh where else was i going uh greenwich before it became greenwich right um a lot of places in the East Village, a lot of like Carmel Lounge, Bar 82, you know, I found that, you know, they were mics, you know, that started in the afternoon, so I would hit like a, a four o'clock mic, and then I'd try to get a first at a six o'clock mic, and then I'd run to Gotham and watch other people, and then I'd study them. So I was basically, comedy was my 24-7, yeah. you know, whether I was doing it or watching it, I was surrounded by it. Um, so that definitely helped me. And then I don't see you for like five years because I don't go to any of those rooms, right? So I, so then all of a sudden you show up, I'm like, I've been doing it. I've been doing it. And then I see you, I'm like, oh my God, this guy's good. You know, like he's, uh, he's up and running, man. It was a whole thing. And then I'm like, then the next time I walk in, you're still the doorman. You know, like, I'm like, wait a second. You're like, I'm going to be on TV. And I'm like, but he's still the door. I'm like, how are you still, get out of this business. Get out of the doorman business. That's, a, that's America. That's that, that, America. That, that is America. <laughs> but um, that's America. So then you do some movies, and uh, you, you you still have the acting thing. You ended up in some big movie, right? Um, yeah, Obvious Child, and it was actually as a stand-up comedian. They wanted an actor who knew who knew comedy. So basically, my audition was me uh, just doing my set. You're like, okay, that works. That's perfect. <laughs> I was like, all right, I didn't hear anything. And then all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, can you show up to this part? Williamsburg was shooting. I'm like, oh, because uh, it was a really like a, a big, a big indie film. So um, yeah, yeah, that sort of happened. And then that was right, literally right before last comic. 
because it was the, I did that, I did the movie, and then I did the Gotham Comedy Live. I was able to weasel my way onto that. I had to audition for Andy Engel in order to even get that spot. <laughs> oh, I was like, hey, you know me, I work here. I had to like audition for Andy Engel <laughs> of all people to. Um, yeah, he likes the ring, that, to ring, the be kiss. Yeah, 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 it's amazing business. It really is. Like, I think I told somebody, like, I did my Letterman, <laughs> first Letterman set. I do it the next night. I'm on stage at the strip, two people. Two. Yeah. Yeah. So that's comedy. You know what I mean? That's it. Yeah. Um, Seriously. And like, you're, you're probably putting more more effort into trying to make those two people laugh because we've all had shitty shows where you're like, I'm going to try, if I could turn this crowd, this like late 11 o'clock, you know what I mean, check spot. And I can, if I could get them, then that really is a test of my mettle. Um, <laughs> I know. It's wow. one, I'm sure you probably say some of those most rewarding shows have been shows like I, I write in my book. Like I perform for over a thousand people on a Hollywood soundstage, but then I've also performed for one person in a bar basement and I fucking had him rolling. Yeah. And that yeah, was yeah, rewarding yeah. to me because he bought me a drink afterwards. He's like, it was like just a, one of these random weird nights just like one person and we still went on. No, it's, <laughs> it is almost true. That's even more rewarding in a weird way. I don't know if it's rewarding, but I know that I could get it. If I can get one joke to work, I don't know. Does, you don't know what good. crowd you're going to yeah. get in. If it works in front of a thousand or works in front of two, if it's a new joke that works, I'm not, I don't care. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't matter the size of the audience. I got something out of that set, and uh, it was yeah. that's what. It, um, all right, I want to just wrap up this segment with. So, what is the dream gig? You're an actor, obviously. You've, you're doing stand up. You've had some success doing that, and now you're a writer, which we'll get to in a minute. But if I have to give you a dream gig, what is the gig? It would probably be. Something involving like an SNL or a Daily Show, something where like politics and comedy sort of blend, and um, I kind of feel like I've been really honing that uh, for the past few years more than anything else. Is sort of finding the funny, if there's any funny to be found in our caustic politics. Wow! Um, so being able to, to spin that in a way, and also talk and handle difficult subjects like race or class, or you know, um, as I speak about. In the book a lot you know, a daily show black and white yeah. divide, being able to juggle those balls and, and find a punchline at the end of it um, <laughs> I think there's that, a punchline you know, in it for a venue, a venue that could provide that for me is like the dream gig so it'd be something like a, a daily show or an SNL well I think juggling balls is your punchline right there right, here we go <laughs> <laughs> right, let's go alright the next one the next one I want to do is uh, this book oh no damn it damn it after I hit the button is that your thing again Hold I didn't on. touch it is that what you hit it I, no, I don't know so what. When you interview with black people, that's when shit starts messing up. Hold on, hold on. Let me make sure it's not Neil's wire. <laughs> yep. Was that, that it? Um, no, I hear it. Is yeah. It my wire? I hear it now, but not like I did. It's that wire. There you go. It's that one. Fuck! I gotta get all these wires replaced now. This is not good. Oh God. Oh Cyrus. Are you guys both in the apartment now together? Or you yeah. call every one of us is remote. No, no, Neil is about to be remote. He's still with me. Yeah, he's, I came. He's over. one of my bubble people. Yeah, we get. I'm the only one allowed in. He's literally the only person allowed <laughs> in the whole apartment. <laughs> We're both waiting for, to kill each other. We don't know it yet. We don't know. It's a battle. <laughs> we just know. And like he, if he gets it, he knows you guys gave it to me. And if we get it, we know you give it to us. <laughs> so we know who's responsible. <laughs> Um, all right, let's talk about the book, um, The Great Black and White Divide. Um, but this is a tweeting, the tweet, tweeting truth to power. You got like 116,000 Twitter followers. 
Um, so as you're telling me this whole story about being a stand-up comedian, you're tweeting away somehow and now getting a following doing it? Yeah, oddly enough, you know, I found that um, before, I guess before you could say like Trump darkened America's doorstep back in like 2014, 2015, a lot of comics had started to, to tweet more. And I found like a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of good comedy was sort of being disseminated in 140 characters. It was almost like a test of jocular dexterity. If you can like craft this well-crafted joke within 140 characters, then it, um, it was sort of like getting people to laugh and it was generating a following. So a lot of comics I noticed started doing it and um, I started doing it as well. But it was just random, just, you know, weird news, stuff that happened in Florida, just crafting little, you know, you know, joke bucket jokes, the type of stuff that you'd see on like Letterman or something. Right. You know, just like, you know, random, just like, haha, not really deep jokes, but you really couldn't do too much with 140 characters. But then when Trump, uh, you know, emerged and the shit just started getting really, really serious, I, um, I started essentially responding to his tweets with, like, you know, I would undermine him with my own tweets and started quoting his tweets and, you know, making punchlines at his expense. And oddly enough, I found that it was it was reverberating. Like, people were really, really uh, responding a lot and responding well to my anti-Trump, my anti-racism material on, on Twitter. And so that inspired me to keep, you know, tweeting even more. And, you know, because I went to school for political science and journalism, so... I already spent a lot of time, a lot of my youth discussing race and, you know, working with organizations that, you know, were anti-racism. And so this phenomenon took over the country and I just found myself like instinctually combating it, you know, on a daily basis. And I was getting more and more followers as a result, which is, you know, odd to me. Um, and so then it got to a point where I got enough people who were responding favorably saying, like, I think that you could write a book. Some of the things you say are really, really resonant, really salient. I really think that this could be in a book. So it took, just like you with stand-up, you know, it took a lot of people just saying, I think you could be good at this thing. And another year from me saying, no, I don't think so, and doubting it until finally saying, oh, maybe I should do that. And that's what became the book. Wow. So can we go back? Let's. Let, so this Twitter thing is craziness. Like, it. How, how? take me through how much time you're starting to spend on Twitter. As it's taken off, you're writing every day, you're... you're I mean, it's not just some fly-by-night where you're putting stuff on like people think. It's, this is becoming a full-time thing for you. Like, you're just really starting to dig in and write, right? Is that how it works? Is that, is that what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, for me, it's, it's taken a lot for me to, to sort of, you know, recognize when, I've, when I'm doing something well or not. You know, I, uh, it took a like, uh, some tweets of mine to go viral. Like, I started seeing, like, somebody told me, like, dude, you should Google your Twitter handle. Like, your stuff is all over the place. Oh, shit. And I did one day, and I was like, like, oh, I'm being quoted in, like, Us Weekly and, and you know, Vanity Fair and, and Variety. It's like all my tweets are popping up, you know, whether it be about something Trump did or something, you know, race-related. And so I was like, okay, maybe this is, maybe I do have, like, the, the skeleton of a book. So what I essentially did is, with the book, Tweeting Truth to Power, is my tweets appeared throughout the text. So what I was doing in real time, how I was responding in real time, whether it be Charlottesville or, you know, the Tree of Life Synagogue uh, massacre or, you know, you know, Cap Colin Kaepernick or his attacking LeBron James, like all these tweets ended up becoming in many ways a skeleton to the book. And I was able to flesh out um, with prose, like, you know, more of what these subjects means and of the context of this moment in American history. So did you, uh, did you sell this? Is the book, published by a big publisher that I know about or is it self-published? 
published it uh, with Ingram Spark, which and also through Amazon, because I just wanted to get it out. Right. You know, I didn't want to. Maybe that's the comic of me. I'm being so proactive. Like, I didn't want to necessarily go to a publishing house and have to, you know, be put on delay or we want right. to change this or change that. Like, I realized I had amassed something in the past four years that is really like a record of our time. Right. And, you know, I've got the, the, the tweets in there and I've got the response to it. And I've seen like, oh, my God, so many people across the country and across the world, like they were picking up what I was putting down. So I felt like I really needed to add a greater context to a lot of what was going on. So the book really targets, you know, my personal history targets American history, mm-hmm. uh, America's racial history. And, you know, I, I, I provide context to a lot of these greater things that were going on. How's, how's it doing? It just launched last week, so it's going it's going remarkably well. Yeah. Okay. And are the Twitter jokes making it to the stage, and the stage making it to the Twitter? Is like it all combining, or is it separate? No, it acts actually. Is I actually saying that you know one thing that I learned, especially this is probably going back to 2016, um, right when you know after the election, and you know everybody was pissed, and it was just the the social media just became this morass. Um, but you know. I responded with serious uh, asides here and there, mostly, and I kind of like abandoned the joking because a lot of things I was just responding to, like, this is racist, this is wrong. Um, But I also found that if you found like a punch, like if you found like a little bit of a punch, like with a Twitter joke, you can then basically expand it on stage. You can actually add a callback to it. You can actually add an act out to it. You can sort of flesh it out more on stage. And I found like a few of the jokes that proven themselves, you know, on, on Twitter with the retweets and all that sort of stuff corroborating. I was like, oh, okay, this is actually, I think, worthy of the stage. I <laughs> That's funny. And I would add to it on stage. Wait, so the measure is retweets or is the measure like you're getting followed? What's the measure? I'm always so confused by this Twitter thing. Like, is it well, followers is certainly a big thing, but you can't necessarily tell what's gonna what what garnered somebody to to start following you. Right. So basically, you just look at a joke, like you know, look at the retweets or the um, or the likes, and you're like, oh, okay, so like twenty thousand people like that. I think that that's probably a a good joke to at least try to like you know flesh out more on stage. Um, All right. Well, like I did this one. I said, you know, uh, one of our other ones. I said, I remember when Obama got elected, I saw black people crying in the streets. And I go, and then when Trump got elected. I saw black people crying in the street. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> funny, that, like, that was like one of my first big ones. I was like, oh, that was like yeah, 20,000 yeah. people responded to that. I was like, okay, I think I can even like, open with that on stage because that sort of just provided its, its, yeah. its viability to me. That's great. That's so funny. That's great. And so there was a joy by the, like when you get 20,000 likes, you just, it's, it, what it, it's pretty good feeling. Like it's pretty cool. Like, 20,000 likes? Yeah, like I get you, two. Yeah, that's what, I'm excited with like 300. 300? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, woo! Oh, I got 300 likes on a tweet? No, but I'd be excited if I got like 300. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying I got excited with two. Like uh, somebody actually read this garbage? Yeah, but that, let's go to the downside of social Wait. media. Is there a downside of this Twitter? Because it's, it's, it's take, yeah, it sure takes over your N-word. It takes over your life, kind of, right? Right. Well, for me, like the downside is like I probably subjected myself to a lot of animus and ignorance that I probably should have. I wish I had like the foresight to be like, okay, I'm not going to go back and forth with this bot who's got like two followers, you know what I mean, who's just trying to push my buttons. You know, it's just like it's become a cesspool for, I say, the righteous and the repugnant to go at each other on a daily basis. And that's what the book pretty much reflects. It's this, this insane time that we've lived through. And me, my going insane in many ways, combating this on a daily basis on Twitter. Um, so when you put something pretty, I mean, you're getting, are you shocked by the shit that comes back at you? Like, it's so much good stuff. Yeah, in- to a degree, because I feel like 
like, and also this is also, you know, I guess uh, confirms what you're, what you're, what you're trying to make. The point you're trying to make. It's emboldened a lot of people to say things they otherwise wouldn't. That's right. Um, you know, like when you do when you do comedy, it's like you, we've all encountered hecklers. But I feel, by and large, the anonymity that social media provides you sort of emboldens people to be that heckler right because they know they don't have anything to like you know they're not going to be in the same room they don't necessarily have to fight you or security it's like they're hunkered down in their mother's basements wherever the hell they are and they can just say the most offensive vile shit because they know that that the distance between you is not gonna that's right to them getting any sort of you know uh, so crazy uh, all right so now other than me and neil are the talking about the black and white divide other than me and neil are white people horrible (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well, I make a distinction because you Jewish, and I grew up in a Jewish community. So, like, I, you and I, as far as I'm concerned, linear brothers. I think that's why we were such fast yeah. friends. We got a, a similar history, a similar, you know, uh, sensibility. So, you always cool with me. I'm gonna roll with you till the wheels fall off. <laughs> you always had a good sense of humor about uh, Christmas Eve when they had the yeah. Jewish show at Christmas Eve at. Uh, that's gonna oh, I loved it. When Doctor Doctor Ruth used to come in, I used to Dr. love it. Ruth. That was like my favorite night to work. Like nobody wanted to work Christmas Eve. Nobody. Like, that is the best night to work. People could not take the complaining, but you thought it was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> People could not no, take man, the complaining. You guys are fantastic. I just think that you know, and I don't want to misrepresent myself. Like this book, uh, where it does have pockets of levity in terms of my tweets. Like this is really a a, a deep dive into America's racial past. So like yeah. I basically look at growing up in Boston, my encounters with racism, both subtle and overt. Um, I look at historical context. I like I basically I this is a you know my brain finally you know unleashed into discussing what is going on in america and how we arrived at this point and the long and short of it is that you know the trumps of the world they're not a symptom of america they're not the cause of america's sickness they are the symptom um right so what does the trump just was it there the whole time and he just made it worse it's just under the surface and it's super bubbling up like i was telling we always talk about this neil and i like we thought it was like if you would tell me what do you think percentage of flat out racists there are in the country, I would probably say I don't know ten, ten to twenty percent. And now it's oh no, no, now I'm certain it's like fifty percent. Right. Well, I think that you and I and Neil probably we um, <laughs> we kind of kid ourselves because we we live in this diverse cosmopolitan bubble. It's like you know. We see so much diversity on a daily basis that it's hard for us to entertain that somebody could be that backward. But one thing that this is this has shown to me is ascension Trump's you know rise these past four years is that there are a lot of people who I call it the narcotic of, of nationalism, uh, the narcotic of white nationalism. A lot more people were piping up on prejudice than we may have thought, mm. and I think he certainly has uh, emboldened people to be a little bit more. Uh, vociferous in their opposition to change and there's a lot of people who are disgruntled I talk about this a lot especially you know even in terms of like comedy to a degree is like people who are comfortable um, disseminating this this sort of like falsehood and I think that's the problem that we're facing in the country is we have people who are now operating with different sets of facts and that does not portend well for like you know generations subsequent to us you cannot have two people operating with different sets of facts in this country um we live in the New York Times. We live in a cosmopolitan world, so we aren't inundated with lies like other people are. Like, like I'm not on Facebook, but from what I hear from people in my dispatches across social media, I got people talking about Facebook, and it's like you got people who are like getting news from different sources. Yeah. They're not getting it from 
you know, verifiable sources. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, and that sucks. And that's, you know, I think it's a, a dark portent for the country. This... All right, I got to wrap this up. Uh, how do you fix the divide? Do you have any um, solutions for this? Other than we all I watch... comedy certainly one. I mean, making... I think, no, honestly, one thing I've learned to be the gospel in my life is that the antidote to society's ills are through interdependence. You need interdependence. You need people working together. You need people living together. Um, I believe that heterogeneous spaces cannot thrive in homogenous bubbles. So we talk about a lot of people have become sequestered, and not even just the way they think, but just in their community, so they don't see any sort of difference. And that sort of just breeds this, this you know... This, this surge of disinformation, you know what I mean? You can believe the most heinous shit about black people if you don't grow up around black people or if you don't work around black people. You don't live next to black people. Right. You know, it's... You we need interdependence in this world. Uh, you need to... I, I always said that people, instead of going to college, they should have to live in New York for a year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that that would, that would certainly be, be a, a, a boost to helping things. How about... Um, I got an no, easier you solution. People. You got an easier solution? We just all... We take out all white people with beards... And that would eliminate everything. Now, the only problem is that that takes the Brooklyn guys with all the beards, the cool guys. That that throws them in there, but that's a sacrifice you have to take right there. Urban lumberjacks. You got to get rid of the urban lumberjacks. <laughs> oh, yeah. The urban lumberjacks. That's funny. All right. Last. You, know, you see a comedy like, you know, you rubbed elbows with all walks of life. So it's hard for you to dislike, to, to believe bullshit. It's like, and I feel like so many people, they just don't have that experience. It's like they're not shoulder to shoulder with black people or gay people or Middle Eastern people. That's true. That's like, true. Okay. What about the Owen that? What about Owen Network? The the yeah, the Own Network. Oh, yeah. what's it's the new worse. one? Newsmax. Oh, yeah, they got two yeah. new networks coming at us. Yeah, great. It's gonna be great. Um, oh, and really? It, yeah. No, no. The, he's talking about Newsmax and OAN. They're like completely crazy right wing, and they're even worse than Fox. That's what he's talking about. It's well, they getting, got that. No, what's it called? Parlor is like the new. Yeah, app Parlor. That's like Twitter, be the, yeah. the right wing Twitter. Yeah, that's and, already launched. Yeah, they oh, have. You have to give shit. them your social Parler. security number and stuff so they can like put you in their lists for. You know. you know, I was thinking, like, I actually responded to, like, I was interviewed yesterday. I think that we may get to a point where, you know how they have people verified on social media for being notables or whatever like that? Yep. I think that it's going to get so bad. And I think, like, the Fox News of the world, they've sort of, like, they've, 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 they've fed this beast for the last 20 years. But we've now got to a point where, like, literally people are not wearing masks. People are, like, choosing to die yep. because they believe some conspiracy theorists. And, like, I think that news outlets are going to have to, like, bind together in some sort of like, you know, a blue check for fact-based journalism, whether it be like the New York Times and the Washington Post all create a conglomerate. So it's like we can, because the bad thing about the internet is that you have something written by a New York Times columnist, but it's enmeshed with some right-wing nut job who wrote it from his mother's basement in Oklahoma. And it's like all this news gets bled together. And it's like, well, no, one of these is like absolutely false. Yeah. So maybe we need to create a sort of like a blue check sort of fact-based news conglomerate where it's like, okay, unless you pass this threshold, like this shit doesn't even get on online. Well, they're saying that they also have to regulate the all these um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. They have to regulate it because they can't be – if they're going to be a media outlet, they have to be regulated as media. So right. there's no – it's the Wild West. There There's no regulations on them. That's why these guys are all lobbying to have nothing. And that's why, that's why like um, the Trump administration doesn't want to do anything to regulate them because they could just say whatever they want. And now he yeah. actually he was like it's under the guise of the First Amendment, which is like I mean now you you get yourself to a problem. It's like if you wanted to censor nutbags who are just disseminating lies and disinformation, then they're going to argue it's a First of First Amendment infraction. So right, but they I also want. Uh, think that like they they also they also want they also want to remove. 
protections for them, though, that you can't sue them for libel. So Trump wants, you know, Trump wants to come after you for saying he wants to come after you for saying shit about him on Twitter. I mean, it's going to it'd be crazy. So they have to really yeah. figure out how to regulate them. I have one quick question so we can end the segment. Is there any hope yeah. that you see on the horizon for the great black and white divide? Okay, thank you. (laughs) I'm trying to be optimistic. Like, you know, I I, I vacillate, especially in this book, between just just utter pathos and then also sort of like a sense of promise. Right. Um, But I look at the fact that, you know, you can look at your own, you know, your own people, your own history. Like, we, our ancestors, society demanded a lot more from them than it demanded of us. We haven't had to encounter World War. We haven't had to encounter Holocaust. We haven't had to encounter segregation. Um, So... Although we're living through a pandemic and, a, and an unmitigated fool uh, as president, we have survived this, and I feel like I was emboldened by the turnout this last election. The fact that he got 70 million or 74 million votes is still a little disheartening, but I feel that you know struggle and progress is a, it's a, it's an endless battle. It's it's constantly a back and forth, you know, over uh, over the course of history. And also, uh, I have a, a, a strong faith that the good prevails. There you the go, end. the good prevails. And we had you on the podcast, so there you go. I proved it already. Eh. Yeah. Let's move on. <laughs> I, I I closed the divide. That, that's my. <laughs> you certainly did. At least. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. The third one I want to do today, we'll get off of politics for a minute and have a little more fun because politics, of course, divides the room. We try to avoid it. But since your book was political, why not? Um, But the third one, I want to go into our little section called home repair Mm. because Neil lives, as the audience knows, Neil lives in a giant money pit and he's constantly doing (laughs) and I get I get report every time he goes to Pennsylvania, which he's going back down for the New Year's and Christmas. Paradise. (laughs) It's Altoona, Pennsylvania, which couldn't be more white and racist by the way Cyrus um, he, he uh, it makes Trump uh, uh, that's my new joke it makes Sound of Music look white Altoona <laughs> <laughs> that's funny and he uh, he um, he's got but every time they go down there this gorgeous Frank Wright knockoff right of a yeah. house is now it's turning so much into a better if you pit. just say Frank Lloyd Wright house it's not like, a knockoff Frank Lloyd Wright <laughs> that's yeah. what I'm trying to it's convince a knockoff. people <laughs> well I mean you can't sell it so he's got like a Taj Mahal but it's a broken Taj Mahal in the middle of like a yeah. cesspool of Pennsylvania so but he's there I and almost it, envy that so like, <laughs> you know you now have balance that neither Lenny nor myself can achieve you, know, <laughs> yeah. you get to New York you get to New York City craziness it beats you down but so you actually can, can escape and breathe yeah oh, complete denial I've I can live in there. complete denial out there I've been there Cyrus you got two choices Red Lobster or Olive Garden and <laughs> I don't know I don't know <laughs> But when you don't eat those for a long, <laughs> you eat two at eleven o'clock in in, uh, in Altoona. No, yeah. when you when, <laughs> the, the thing with the the thing with the I, I don't know. It's all shitty down there. <laughs> There's nothing good. Uh, no, let, no, I'm asking you. Honestly, do you feel? Do you like? Uh, do you honestly feel like you leave there from New York City and you finally get there? However, like the two three hours it takes you to get there. And six do you, do you actually four. exhale. Would you like sit on that porch and just like look out and just exhale? Absolutely. That you feel like you're in another world and that you're like 
Absolutely. That you're just like completely living a different life. That's what it feels like. It feels like like it's almost like you're a spy and then you go back to your house where you're not a spy because New York and L.A. are right. New York and L.A. are one thing. And then this place <laughs> is a completely other thing. And they, they are all the Trumpers are around us. Everyone's got their sign up. It's got all that. But it's total suburbs. It's not even suburbs. It's like small, small town. I literally, and it's it, a house. It literally looks like you ever see Misery. That movie where he's driving along. If it's snow covered and then Neil comes out, breaks your legs, drags you back in the house. Yeah. You know, (laughs) it does. It does feel feel good to be in a house. I've lived in this small rent control one bedroom in New York forever. So like just to be in a house, you feel normal. You're like, oh, my God, a house like it has. Imagine in terms of quarantine that that's like just outstanding. Like you can't beat that because I know folks are just like so many people have actually just straight up left New York because like, why am I doing this sentence in a one bedroom apartment when I could just be someplace cheaper and actually like see trees? Yeah, no. Then and then bringing it all back to Lenny's point, it was all amazing until the sewage broke in yeah. the middle of the pandemic. He's got a money pit on his <laughs> yeah, yeah, This yeah, is yeah. the downfall. You got to upkeep this house. This house smelled so fucking bad after like... Shitter's full! <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could not figure out. Me and Beth were like, it's starting to smell and then we're like, it's alright, we'll just deal with it and then it started to really smell <laughs> and then it, uh, then it smelled so we couldn't go in one half of the house and we were only up to the top part of the house <laughs> and then like, something's got to be wrong so I go into the house and there's fucking sewage everywhere. The sewage, oh the sewage, God. the sewage line broke, and so that. The, anyways, that's a money. He's pit got for you. septic tank problems. <laughs> He's got no. There was no septic tank. Um, that's what I didn't know. I thought it was a septic tank. Oh, you that's how sewage, stupid I am. Sewage line problems. He's got uh, like squirrels. That was a problem, right? We've had everything. Squirrels. It's been. So bugs. let me ask you a question. So, as the homeowner, that that price you incur that repair cost. Or is that the city? No, it's town? that's that's what blows me away is I can't call a fucking landlord. I got to do shit. Yeah, he's and it's do it. all expensive. And I've never known a more helpless. I'm sure you guys feel the same way. I never know a more helpless feeling, except maybe maybe a car mechanic where I'm at such mercy. I know nothing, and the, I. This no is matter, the point of being. No matter rich. what I look, you need on to YouTube, be rich so yeah, you can just so you call care. somebody. That's yeah. right. It's when you have to do it yourself. My father did every last thing in the house himself, and I'd say eighty percent of the time. He did it. Yeah. Then there was 10% of the time that he shouldn't even attempted this. And it came out ridiculous until my mother was like, we got to call somebody. And then there's the oh just, my God, my father was the very same way. There's something about that. I think that generation of men. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever like, you know, uh, internalized this yourself. So like, I don't know how to fix shit. Like my father, yeah. like, you know, a lot of stuff, like you said, Lenny, like he probably didn't have, he shouldn't have done or shouldn't have attempted, but by and large, it's like, you know, a tiles are shooting off the wall. He can, he knows how to spackle and, and put it back together, yeah. you know, or wires and shit like that. Yeah. Do you have like, those skills? I, helpless. I need <laughs> you don't Jose, my Puerto Rican super. <laughs> He is my fucking lifeline. Yeah, see, I have none of those skills, which is funny. Well, here's my skill. I learned first of all, I realized my skill is the new is tech. So it's like, okay, the computers break, I yeah, can fix it that's myself. You. That's right. You. If this equipment goes down for a minute, I can fix it myself. I figured out how to hook it all up. You know, the TVs are me, whatever. Putting the wall behind the TV, going through the uh, concrete and bringing it down the other side, that is not me. You know what I mean? The, you got it. <laughs> I'm not breaking into this wall. You know, like you got to know. I was always like, you got to know your limitations. If my father wants to rake, 
the leaves in the backyard, you just take out a rake and put leaves in a bag. That's one thing. But if he wants to try and get the grass to grow right himself, it took him 20 years to figure out, like, hey, maybe you should just call a landscaper who knows how to do this shit. You <laughs> I've know? always been right. bad at that. But we didn't have any money. Child, we didn't have any child, money. That was like your fate. You started, you hear like hammering early on a Saturday morning. You're just like, oh shit. Yeah, we had it. Here a- we go, because you know you're going to have to be the assistant. And then you have to go and help them hold shit or just whatever. Oh, I had. You always get mad at you for bringing the wrong screwdriver. Just, I, oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. I had this whole bit, Cyrus, one time about holding the bag. So, like, my father was like, I would rake oh the leaves God. and I would do it so bad that my father, like, just hold the bag, right? <laughs> and that was like. A- and that was like a metaphor from life. Robert Kelly always loved this bit. Like it was just a metaphor for my life. Like you can't do shit. So just hold. Sometimes you just got to hold the bag, you know? And uh, well, to this day, I look at a screwdriver and I get this like this, this like little pinch of, of just like sadness because I remember being drilled the difference between a Phillips and a flathead. Oh, yeah, yeah. My father was angled over a ladder screaming at me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that takes my life too. That's my most famous story. When I started the lawnmower business i well i was mowing my own lawn and then i didn't want to bag anything yeah and so i just me and my brother we took all the grass and stuck it in all the sewers around the street nice and we didn't know (laughs) yeah yeah we were too lazy to bag it so we just were shoving it in the in the sewers and then our next door neighbor it it rained one day and then our next door neighbor's like mother you fuck guy (laughs) and we and it turned out we flood we didn't realize what we were doing we but we Clogged up all the sewers and it flooded his backyard into his house because <laughs> oh we we God. just stuck all the grass in this guy's sewer over and over like a whole yard full of grass and that that's that sums it up that's um, my life right there. yeah and but it, here's the funny part about that Cyrus forty years later karma gets him and backs up his sewer into his house so, hey man karma's real next karma okay. is real dude now wait can you can I'll ask both of you can you both of you can either one of you go on to like if you have to do like let's say you I'm just making this up but let's say you go to a bathroom and you're gonna put tile up in your bathroom can you go to YouTube and then make that happen yes well here's what I did as Bullshit. you know Neil I cannot no make no that not happen. tile in my bathroom it depends on what it is so like I told you I fixed the flapper the, for, for, as soon as we wa- moved into this apartment you know how the toilet just runs yeah 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 and I and it would stop and then I've been watching TV and it would just run and stop and I can't figure it out for years I'm like what is causing this problem I've been here a year I finally take the toilet tank thing off and I see the little flappy thing when you flush the toilet goes up and the water replaces it that flappy thing looks old I wonder if I buy a new one can I replace that flappy thing and I bet you the toilet stops running whatever (laughs) right so I'm gonna replace the flappy thing I looked at eight videos I researched the part I go out, I get the part. Now I got to replace it. It's definitely not as easy as it looked on the the thing because the the new flappy thing is. But built you do older go on YouTube flappy. or whatever. Of course, oh, yeah, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. I go on YouTube. I watch everything he does for the hopefully the exact model that I have, yeah. and then I replace I replace this flapper. Shit. And I did it for both. Hey. And you know what? It stopped my problem. <laughs> so I'm taking that as a huge victory. Everybody else is laughing at me like that's possibly the easiest thing you could possibly done. But I didn't call somebody to do it. Would have cost me to have don't the super. Don't let it be a gateway drug. Don't let <laughs> next time you like smell gas or something. Don't be, I'll go in and fix this. Funny. Like, you, don't let it be a gateway. <laughs> funny you say that, Cyrus. I had the 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 stove had a gas problem, and I'm like, I bet you it's one. I bet you it's this little piece of the igniter. 
not touching it to say there's no fucking way I'm playing with the gas line in my house, you know? I so I go down and I <laughs> so I pick up the phone and I call a freaking expert and it costs me money and he comes in and does it. But my dad would have tried to fucking do he the gas line. Himself, yeah. Either that oh, or yeah, blown up the house. The, the, the oven would have been Apart, yeah. Off yes. All stuff. Yes. Absolutely. There would have been a hundred parts, and then eventually he would have put it back. Now, and the oven wouldn't work. Now right this to totally years. makes me a total wimp or a loser, or whatever. Sometimes we notice that we do better if the contractor or the guy comes over, and then Bethel is just there by herself, and then he goes, and I stay in the room, and she's like, "Well, I don't know what happened. The roof is collapsing." And then I took over this house, I inherited this house, and then sometimes, crazy enough, like the first, sometimes the people just do the work for free for what? Bethel, no. like they'll just want to help. But if I show up, if I show up. Yeah, or or something. And then so if I do, if I show up, then it's all it's it's rip off city. It's Mm. like fifteen thousand, twenty thousand, ten thousand, five thousand. And I'm like, I guess, I don't know. And then I go to that stupid home advisor app, which is a piece of shit. Unfortunately, Neil (laughs) I have so many horrible stories. Yeah, but the the end of the story, Cyrus, (laughs) that Neil doesn't tell you is Bethel's gotta like sleep with the guy. I would. <laughs> and that's all I got my, that's yeah, all I got yeah, the yeah. fix. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> We've had so many problems from the hornet's nest to the sewage to the roof to the to the heater broke. Oh my god. The hornet's nest. Well, I guess that's, that's the problem with the house is you're dealing with outside and inside now. So whatever comes at you outside like you know a tree falls and like you know destroys like half of the roof or something like that's your problem now yeah outside and inside yeah and sewage it turns out you're responsible for the sewage up into the street mm. which is insanity like the sewage from the the town that they put in the the pipes all broke but we're responsible for it up into the street and then this little guy can't even fathom how much that must be goodness uh, gracious it's the whole thing is insane and the roofers won't do the roof it, it just and the it's it's all crazy well let me uh let me just end this segment neil by giving <laughs> Squirrels. you my, oh my, my latest conquest yes. so the shark hand dustbuster thing that we have over there the little flappy thing you know when it fills with whatever oh yeah and you hit the button and it opens it and all the junk falls out well that little plastic thing broke off yeah that's what they do and you know what i did i went online i researched the 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 piece right yeah i had him send it to me right and i replaced it but that doesn't count as much as if you would have just fixed it without calling them then i would have i can't fix it it's a plastic and plastic bro i would have respected my dad would have like taped that yeah he would have fixed it that's what you're missing you get online that doesn't even count what are you talking about anybody can do that absolutely not i want you to fix it yourself you're absolutely that's (laughs) insane it's a piece of plastic you can't fix that you have to take the whole part you know what you're making me do you're making me I'm about to give my my super an extra twenty. I'm giving him sliding an extra twenty. You got to. So damn good. I know. Well, I mean, you got look. He also has advantage. That's what he does for a living. And two, he knows every nook and cranny of your building. Like it's going out of style. He knows. Don't touch that thing over there because it's been broken for twenty years. You know. But in New York, you have the other problems with the house. Like. Whenever he comes up, he gives me like this running diatribe of how awful the landlord is. They don't want to spend money. They don't want to spend. Right. Look at this. It's been this this way for 20 years. They don't want yeah. to spend. Yeah. By the way, his- they don't want to fix it. They don't want. I know that's how my building is in New York. They we got mice. Uh, no, the bed bug. Don't tell anybody. Blah 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 yeah, blah blah. Yeah, they, so we've had the same problems. It's just you're not responsible for fixing it. And the house is like squirrels in a house is comparable to. We are comparing squirrels to mice, which would you know it's all the same. By the way, just. Just as a point here, okay? The guy's name is The Super. 
he should be able to do shit. I'm still scarred his not, by his name's not the mediocre. I know, it's but they're the super. They're 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 terrible too. Like they'll put in the worst. They'll come and put the worst job ever in your place. One time the super came out. We had these old fixtures. He took them out and stole our fixtures, <laughs> and put in shitty old ones. So I don't even like the super to come into my apartment anymore. <laughs> this is why wow. Neil is in dilapidating circumstances. This is wait. Well, let me tell you. This is how you know on, you have a. This is how you know you have a squirrel problem in your house. Just yeah. for all those people out there. Sorry, this is for you. Is when you. You have your, uh, your, you put your artificial Christmas tree up, and you find a, uh, you find a walnut from the outside in ha- in the top half of your Christmas tree. And I'm like, are you Wait, kidding? Are you serious? Yeah, the squirrels had been coming into this house when we weren't there and just having like a party, and they started hiding their the walnuts from our tree all over the house. And there was one in the Christmas tree, in the fake Christmas. Oh my god! Because we put up a fake Christmas like tree. Griswold, for real. That's like, <laughs> that's like Christmas vacation. Yeah. He's Bill Murray. He's trying to kill all these rodents. All right, here we go. All right. Oh, I was gonna say, like, the, you know, one way that uh, every man, when you're in a relationship, you get to the point where one day you're taking a shower and it turns into a foot bath. <laughs> That's <laughs> no, true. And then your super comes up and like, "There's too much hair down the drain, or too much hair." Yeah, I know. No, it's it's. Oh God, I can't, can't even tell. One time, this I took try to take the door off the <laughs> the thing, and I ended up holding the door, and I ended up calling him with like my teeth. I mean, like, could you come up right now? Because I got a problem. <laughs> Wait, didn't your balcony from your old apartment dr- fill up with ice? It it clogged up. It always clogged up. I fixed that myself. Get out. You fixed that? You didn't fix it. I did. Bal- I fixed it. I got it. You got to write your fixers down. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write all the Lenny, things I fixed. Lenny, is your building your new building as good as your last one? Do you like it as, as much? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's great. Better. It's even better. Yeah. Uh, okay, so are you farther west now? Uh, a little further west, like they're right down 72nd. It's like Green Acres in reverse for Lenny Marcus. <laughs> <Get out. laughs> Neil's going into the fourth corner. Uh, we're going to do a little quiz. I'm going to put him in the soundproof booth. Go, Neil. Go, Neil. Okay. Go, Neil. Gina, make sure he's not cheating. My wife's going to make sure he's not cheating. She can't hear me. She's playing music. Are you in the booth? Yeah. All right. Why can I hear you? Which room are you in? Birdies? Yeah, I'm in Birdies. All right, he's in, he's in the back. Okay, we're going to do a quiz since we have you. And uh, we're going to do a, uh, a quiz on black actors. Okay, so I'm, okay. I'm going to give you the movie. You give me the lead black actor. So if I said Get Hard, you'd say Kevin Hart. Okay. Okay. All right, 15 questions. We'll see if you can beat Neil. Here we go. Number one, Trading Places. Yep. Lethal Weapon. Danny Glover. Yep. The Shawshank Redemption. Morgan Freeman. I Am Legend. Will Smith. The Hurricane. <laughs> Denzel. <laughs> An officer and a gentleman. Lou Gossett Jr. Nice. Pulled out Oscar for that. Yes, he did. Pulp Fiction. Awesome. Uh, the Matrix. Free your mind, you. Florence Fishburne. <laughs> I'm going to do all the impressions, too. This is great. Rocky One. Carl Weathers. Nice. Nighthawks. Billy D. And give me his last name, please. Williams. Thank you. Hotel William Ro- D. Williams. Hotel Rwanda. Don 
Machido. Yep. White men can't jump. Oh, that's Wesley. Wesley Snipes. Nice. The last king of Scotland. Forrest Whitaker. Moana. He won't ask him for that. Yes, he did. Moana. Moana. Are we claiming the rock? Yeah, uh, my man, uh, The Rock. Yep. Dwayne Johnson. Yep. And one more. Lilies of the Field. Oh, you're taking it back to the old school. Yeah. That's Sidney Poitier. Perfect score, Cyrus. I love it. All right, Neil. Let's see if he can do it. Now, Neil knows a lot about movies. I'll hand him that one. And we okay. have I do have a tiebreaker if we have to go there. You but gotta do the impressions, too. Nah, he can't do that. <laughs> this is good, Neil. All right, Neil. This is easy. This is right up your alley. All right, let's do it. Other than you're white. Um, okay. <clears throat> this is movies. Black right. actors. Okay, let's go. This is all men. Black actors, I give you the movie, you give me the lead black actor. So if I said get hard, you'd say? Kevin Hart? Yep. Okay, so there you go. So, so um, I got one? No, that was Shit. an example. Sorry. All right, All right you got to go. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. He, uh, he did well. Oh, uh, shit. <laughs> In fact, Neil, no pressure. He got all of them. This is a lose-lose for me. 15 oh, for 15. Fuck. All right. And he did impressions of a lot of them. Oh, shit. Yeah. All right. And good ones. I only have a few stored in my head of any actor, so here we go. Nah, this is this is your this is you. Okay, let's go. Okay. Let me get my buzzer ready. It makes me so happy when he loses uh Cyrus. Here we go. Trading places. Oh, Eddie Murphy. There you go. Woo! Let's stop it there. Lethal weapon. Lethal weapon, uh uh Danny Glover. Yeah. The Shawshank Redemption. Morgan Freeman. I am legend. Who, by the way, a Twitter yes. thing. I started following Morgan Freeman, but not the actor. I thought it was Morgan Freeman. Who you'd follow? I don't know. Some some guy. This guy tweets like crazy. I'm like, I love Morgan Freeman. He's going. <laughs> he's crazy. <laughs> I was like, this guy is going after Trump. Like I followed him because he just would go after Trump. I've never seen anyone go after Trump like this guy. I'm like, let's go, Morgan. <laughs> it's some. Um, uh, it turned out it wasn't real. Real Morgan Freeman. It's like this a dish. Whole like for six months, I thought uh, I thought it was Morgan Freeman, the actor. He's a diner owner from somewhere in yeah, Missouri. Uh, I am legend. Uh, Will Smith. Yep. The hurricane. The reason I won't get a vaccine because that's that movie's <laughs> truth. <laughs> the hurricane. The hurricane. <laughs> Denzel. Yeah. I'm gonna need last names here. People. You can, you don't say Denzel's last name. You do. I have my famous Denzel story that I'll have to tell one day. Okay, go ahead. No, I can't. It's too long. Denzel what? Denzel Washington. Yep. The officer and a gentleman. You met yeah, that's a long basketball story. Yeah, it's a basketball story. Denzel put me in my place really quick. Yeah. An, an officer and a gentleman. <laughs> officer and a gentleman is, uh, oh my God, it's my favorite, one of my favorite movies. Uh, mm, this is going to hurt. Shit. He won the Academy Award. I know, and he's staying by me. Uh, mm-hmm. He's still alive. Yeah. Uh, fuck. Richard Gear. Mm. Uh, I know it. Uh, uh, no, pass. I, I'll, I'll come, come back. Come you back. come back? Yeah. Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Now you got me stuck on Den- the other one. Wait. Well, just concentrate. Samuel Jackson. You know who yeah. he is, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what happened. How's, how good is that impression? Uh, yeah, that is good. I'm yeah. not going to quit. I got nowhere else to go. The Matrix. I'm Richard Gere. Uh, what? The, the Matrix. The Matrix is uh, for Fishburne, Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. Uh, Rocky One. Rocky One, Carl Weathers. Yeah. Nighthawks. Oh, Nighthawks. Nighthawks. Fuck, I don't know Nighthawks. Wolfgar. What? I just don't know it. It's just the best movie. 
<laughs> no wonder I don't know it. What? It's a classic. Nighthawks? Nighthawks. Jesus Christ. Is that the one where he's like in a gang? No. Like he's uh. a detective. Oh, shit. Yeah. That Fly Stallone. Yeah, I just don't. I just don't know that Nighthawks. I will, all right. Well, that, you're gonna you're gonna lose right now. Here we get nothing. Can you got I nothing. Google it. <laughs> hey Siri. Sorry. Hey Siri, who's the actor in uh, Officer Gentleman? Billy D. Williams. Ah oh, shit. Well, why don't you say Star Wars? What? Because I said Nighthawks. Hotel Rwanda. Mm, Hotel Rwanda. Yeah. Oh shit! I know that one. Yeah, you I do. like this movie. Uh, that was a good movie. Fuck. The Hootsies and the Tootsies. Yeah, like, yeah. Gina I, always I, wants to know how I know stuff. Uh, well, it's, a, it's always in the. It was in the New York Times puzzle last week. She goes, "How do you even know that?" I'm like, "Hotel Rwanda." I don't know. I don't know. Pass. Uh, Don Cheadle. Shit. Ugh, you should have said Ocean's Eleven. I would have got that quicker. Okay. White men can't jump. All right, it's over. White men can't jump. Wesley Snipes. That's right. Last King of Scotland. I have Scot- a white man can't jump story, too. What, Last King of Scotland. Last King of Scotland, uh, Forrest Whitaker. That is correct. Moana. Wow, I'm doing better than I thought. Mo- uh, Moana, the animated movie. I know how you love animation. No idea. It's The Rock. <laughs> Thank you. And Lilies of the Field, we go back to 1950, 1964. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, you want to go back to your an officer and a gentleman. I just can't think of it. Oh, come on, man. I didn't do well on my SAT for this very reason. Panic <laughs> has set in. Lewis Gossett Jr. was not on your SAT. When he's spraying him with the hose, when he's spraying Richard Gere with the hose, you don't understand. I got nowhere else to go. Richard Gere was my guy. He was my guy. Oh, my Fuck. God. Well, not bad. 12 out of 15, you just went up against a buzzsaw. And the winner is Congratulations. You deserve that win. Nice job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you win. <laughs> you win another Neil beating is what he wins. All right, the way we end the show. Well, no, the, only, the, the only logical thing is to give us fifteen white actors, and that'll be the <laughs> That's true. Next for the rematch, we'll do that one. Um, um, the way we end the show every week, Cyrus, is we do one good thing or one bad thing of the week. You could do both if you have one good thing and one bad thing. Neil, would you like to start on one good thing? Or yeah, one my one good thing. Oh, it's my dad's birthday today, even though I'm oh, not there. It is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a I believe he's, Sagittarius? I believe it's the big 80. 80? Maybe. I, I, he's either 78 or so. Anyways, I'm not there. I'm always there on his birthday. Oh, no. This will be the first time I haven't been at home, so that's the bad thing. Oh, uh, we should On call the holidays. That sucks. Yeah. It has been a sucky year for that, but happy birthday. Big Bill. Bill Never listen to the podcast ever. Ever. Doesn't have the patience. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. We've had his mother on, but I guess Big Bill. But he does give advice on the house all the time. Sell that fucking thing. (laughs) (laughs) He's right on that one. Sell that fucker. He's right on that. Um, Cyrus, one good thing or one bad thing of the week that happened to you? Now, the one good thing is that I literally, while we've been talking, was just texted the trailer for the new Coming to America 2, and it looks hilarious. So for me, and Eddie Murphy fan, I'm sure you're an Eddie Murphy fan, like that movie is a classic, um, so I am very much looking forward to seeing this. Funny that you bring that up, Cyrus, because I've seen it. Um, we Leslie's in it, so Leslie Jones is in that, and she sent it to me to take a look. And it's if you like the first one, you'll be very comforted to know that all your friends are back in this one. The story's a little thin, but it makes you smile the whole way, knowing that these people are still out there and and doing oh, their thing. Oh, serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I 
obviously. You've already seen it. I've seen it. So I think you'll be happy. It's not going to blow you away, but it'll be like, just, it'll be a nice hug. Just so you know, I wasn't invited to that screening. Sorry. Sorry. Just so Sorry. You know. I've seen it. <laughs> Jermaine is great in it. You know Jermaine Fowler? He's great. Yeah. Yeah. He does a really great job. He's the, he's. He plays the son. Yes. Right? Yes. And I he's know good. The, the premise, the loose premise of it all. So that's yeah. great. It oh, is. Man. It is very thin. Do they have the McDonald's type restaurant in there? Maybe? They do. Oh, that's my favorite. They do. It's it. very Wait, fun. Give that away to see you come back. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he's back. Uh, oh, wow. He's he's an old man too. He's like in his eighties. Uh, Just let your soul blow. Oh yeah, that is so good when he gets up off the couch and it's like a stain. In the couch. <laughs> so, there's so many Do good things. Because my father passed many years ago, but I remember my father laughing his ass off on that seat. When he was sitting on the couch, <laughs> yeah. and he got up and there was like the three fucking stains on it. Oh, yeah. So like, oh that shit, that movie still. I, when it's on, I still watch it. It's well, one of those few movies like where if you just are flicking channels and it's on, you're gonna watch it. Yeah, it's funny that and Trading Places. I just grew up. I think I've watched both those movies like a, a thousand times each. Well, yeah, we watch we watch TV different than it would. We would watch those movies over and over, over and over again. It's it's not as good as the first one, but it's definitely it it honors the the first one. And um, a lot of the people that you know are back, and um, it it makes you smile. It really does. It makes you smile. But it's not gonna. He not win an Academy Award with this one. That's for sure. You know, it's it's a, <laughs> it's a little thin. It's a little thin. Gotcha. Uh, um, and my one good thing of the week is uh, the cleaning lady came. Neil, I couldn't take it. So you aren't the only person who's been here in the last three months. Oh, I had to have the cleaning lady come oh, in good. and just the once I can. It's disgusting. So we left and let her clean. She did the a joint. good job. She did a good job. She's she's mass. She's from Estonia. What does that cost these days? The enough. Two hundred. Enough. Two. Two hundred. Enough. It's <laughs> just another late in the year expense. Chalk it up to. See, that's an expense to me that's worth it, but I don't... It really is. I just know this. If she had COVID and we're all inhaling it, I'll die in a clean apartment. That's all I can deal with. The last cleaning lady I had in New York, I got a cleaning lady to come. <clears throat> Bethel had been out of town <clears throat> for a month. I got her to come to my apartment, the cleaning lady. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a big battle in our apartment. She wouldn't clean unless I signed her up. She wants to come every week, uh, at, at least no, twice a month, good. or she's not cleaning. Oh, that's how they get you. Yeah, that's I was like, I was like, well, can't you just do one time? And it ended up she just played me. I paid her like $120 for like a small one-bedroom mm -hmm. apartment. And I was like, okay, I'm not doing a cleaning lady again. Nah. It was just too It was too hard. Too hard. Well, this lady does a great job, and she's so sweet, and she comes, and she's, you know, she's hurting. So I, I, we just go for it. I know she's safe. She'll go into the – it's very – she's not a peep. Goes into the bathroom, puts, you know, she has the mask on the whole time, goes into the bathroom. I don't see her for like, <laughs> you know, half an hour. Then she comes out and does the next room. Don't see her for a half an hour. From where? Estonia? Estonia. And you have that conversation? Like, where are you from? Well, she gave me chocolates because we're so nice to her, she says. Oh, uh, okay. And they're from Estonia. Oh, okay. All right. Mm -hmm. Never and been. And then we went and looked up Estonia. <laughs> yeah, that's why I have to go a, look it up. I don't even know where it is. It's in Europe. It's oh, uh, on top of Latvia. Oh, shit, again, Which, again. I, that doesn't help me either. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, and then but this is our last show of the year, so we'll do a, a end of the year recap, but it's only going to air in Jan the first one, January. So everybody have a safe and yeah, happy great holidays, everybody. Stay safe. Christmas and New Year. And Cyrus McQueen. Cyrus, thanks for doing thanks this. Thanks for doing it. But I want to tell Thank Cyrus one so more time. Much, man. Like, Lenny, you know I love you so much. I like, know. our history... You, we, we forever have this bond. I just want to take a moment because, like, talking to you just made me think about we're surrounded by so much sadness and so much awfulness right now, and we've made it through. And just talking to you makes me think about all the great people that we've lost, like, this year and then the year last. So 
I can't think of you without thinking of Vic Henley, and I can't mm-hmm. think about you without thinking about Angelo Lozada or William Stevenson, and just all these great guys that you know aren't going to see 2021. So, and connecting with you, I'm kind of like it, it brings me down memory lane, and then it just warms my heart because you've always been one of my favorite people, and we've got such a shared history. Thanks, Cyrus. And I wish you nothing but the best. Your beautiful family, nothing but the best. Same with you, Neil. Hope you Thanks. get that shit out of the out of the yard. <laughs> <laughs> I and- wish you nothing but the best, man. I really, really do. We we made it through a tumultuous tumultuous year, so thanks, Cyrus. Um, you guys too. That was great. Um, your website is cyrusmcqueen.com. Your Twitter is Cyrus M McQueen, and your Instagram yes. is also Cyrus M McQueen. And the book is Tweeting Truth Tweeting to Power. Tweeting Truth to Power, chronicling our caustic politics, crazed times, and the great black and white divide. And Cyrus, so much success, and I hope I finally get to run into you in 2021 because it's been too long. I know. I'm thinking we'll make a, a, a Grace Papaya day. We'll just go and just stand on the corner and just chop it up. Yes, let's chop it up. All right, we'll see everybody. Have a happy and healthy. Bye, everybody. Four Corners Podcast was created, hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Lenny Marcus. Executive producers Matt Kleinschmidt and Robert Kelly for the Laugh Button Podcast.